Hello, this is Brent Siddle, and along with my co-host, Ian Reid, we'd like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Just before we proceed with today's God Story podcast with our very special guest, Gordon Smith, we'd like to remind you that this is our first Saturday release in our holiday season double release schedule. You can now enjoy two episodes a week of the God Story podcast for the next little while, which will be uploaded on Saturdays and on Wednesdays. So enjoy and have a great holiday season. Now on with the podcast. The Holy Spirit is a central part of God's story, but there's always been debate about the role of the Holy Spirit in Christian life and practice. How do we best experience the Holy Spirit, yet stay faithful to Scripture? Well, one man who's thought very deeply about the work and role of the Holy Spirit is Gordon T. Smith, President and Professor of Systematic and Spiritual Theology at Ambrose University and Seminary in Vancouver, Canada. And his new book from IVP America is called Welcome, Holy Spirit, A Theological and Experiential Introduction. And Professor Smith joins us on Zoom from Canada now. Thank you, sir, for joining us. My pleasure. Delighted to be with you. Looking forward to the conversation. Yes, and so, and also we should say, and we cannot possibly forget uh, our, our co-host and presenter, Rido, the Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church in Palmerston, North New Zealand. Rido joins me too. Morning, Rido. How are you, Brent? Hi, Rido. I'm the, I'm the silent partner. You're not the silent partner at all, brother. No, no. Well, can, can I ask you, uh, Professor Smith, in what ways is the work of the Spirit, or what ways has the work of the Spirit been so prone to manipulation and ideological abuse? Well, four questions, I think, are fundamental to any understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The relationship between the Holy Spirit and Christ, the second and third persons of the Trinity, is simply a fundamental question. You miscue on that, everything goes awry. Secondly, your understanding of the relationship between the Holy Spirit and Scripture. You lose that sense of connection, everything goes awry. Thirdly, the sense, the relationship between the Holy Spirit and creation, which, frankly, is perhaps the most neglected, but one of the most urgent things we need to recover is to realize that the Holy Spirit was profoundly active in the bringing about of the entire created order, the very created order that the Holy Spirit is about the redemption of. So what is the whole relationship between the Holy Spirit and the stuff of creation? And then fourthly, the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the church, what some have spoken of as an ecclesial pneumatology, forgive the technical phrase, but the idea that the, the only Holy Spirit we know is the one that we know as those who are in fellowship with the church. My read is that those four questions are foundational and that as often as not, when something's not quite working and you think this pneumatology or this way of speaking about the spirit or experiencing the spirit seems awry, that is something is not, there's a disconnect somewhere where we feel it either explicitly, we know this is wrong, or intuitively there's a disconnect uh, we feel it. it's likely because one of those four, if not all four, of those questions have not been adequately attended to. Why has the work of the Spirit in creation been so ignored, do you think, or underplayed? Well, I mean, uh, the, the typical standard response is that uh, Western Christianity, and by that I mean the Christianity that's heir to the flourishing of the church in Europe. So that, in, that, in, that includes all kind of people of European descent, that our faith was deeply informed by Greco-Hellenistic perspectives that were deeply ambivalent about uh, embodiment, about flesh, 
about uh, the tangibility of life. And so there tends to be within philosophically, and it's influenced the faith, philosophically, a kind of prioritizing the spirit world as over against the physical tangible world. But it doesn't take much of a kind of a gentle corrective to see that the scriptures are all about stuff. That is Genesis chapter one. It's stuff that's being created and it's declared good. And then, so that almost, you almost want to say every time the spirit shows up, something tangible and concrete comes into being. The most dramatic of those, of course, is the incarnation, that by the gift of the Holy Spirit, God's very self took on human flesh. Uh, but we, 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 we've had kind of an ambivalence about that. Uh, and many of us, myself included, grew up within religious subcultures that were very uh, hesitant to affirm our embodiment, our physicality, and the stuff of creation. And I think part of it also, if I may add this, there was this also this notion that when all is said and done, we're going to leave this embodiment. We're going to sail away from this body to be kind of ethereal spirits in the air in heaven, which for those of you in New Zealand is down. For those of us in this part of the hemisphere is up. But we're going to go up. You're going to go down. You get my point. I'm teasing, of course. But the cosmology assumed that this earth is all dispensable. It's not part of God's eternal future. And so that added to the sense of that embodiment, my body is neither here nor there, rather than realizing, one, we are deep, we are embodied souls. All of this came into being by the spirit, and we cannot pull our embodied souls, the soul body apart. Uh, so it, it runs deep, you might say, within the piety or the spirituality of the heirs of European uh, Christian faith. To what extent does our own church or denominational experience shape the way we think about the Holy Spirit? Oh, without doubt. Without doubt, it does. And I, fact, I find with my students, I will as often as not start there. I said, tell me about your own upbringing, the faith community of which you're a part. Your parents, but more particularly the church community, uh, was the Holy Spirit ever mentioned? And if the Holy Spirit was mentioned, in what context and setting? And um, it was interesting for me to do this in Romania a number of years ago. And I, I teased the, um, the students that I was with because they, were, they represented a group of both Baptists and Pentecostals. And I said, yesterday morning at Trinity Baptist Church, there was literally no reference to the Holy Spirit. It was all about the Father and the Son. And the Spirit presumably was taken for granted. And then in the evening, I preached at a Pentecostal church, and it was all about the Holy Spirit with no reference to the Father and the Son. And there's no, there's no doubt that within the one where there's a non-mention, that is what you, know, you might think of as a truncated pneumatology, there's no reference to the Holy Spirit. It's an absent spirit. In fact, the pastor jokingly said, we're Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. Those are our three. And they're biblicists. They're Bible-believing Christians. Uh, and then there's almost, you might say, a pneumocentered or a spirit-centered piety and liturgy in the other, and all points in between. But I think it's very helpful to just step back, not in a judgmental way necessarily, to say, what, what are my religious roots? Or if you came to faith as an adult, the faith community that was catalytic in that, that played a kind of a, um, an instrumental role in your coming to faith, what was their pneumatology? And are you able to, to describe it? And, and part of what I'd like to do, even in those four questions, is to use those four questions to say, 
from what you can recall of the church community you were a part, do this kind of audit, you might say. But in that case, it goes back to your own experience of coming to faith as an adult. And what was in that actual journey to faith, how was the Holy Spirit talked about? How was it referenced? How was the Holy Spirit referenced? Was the Holy Spirit mentioned at all? Uh, where did that come into the, to the reflection or the dialogue or the conversation about it? So I don't know whether your, your tribe was influenced by mine as mine was, but uh, we, we used to talk about two little booklets that were put out by Campus Crusade for Christ. The little brown or tan booklet that was about coming to Jesus and the little blue booklet that was about getting the filling of the Holy Spirit, as though this was two separate things. Whereas the New Testament, I think, weaves these together. But it's helpful that your, your, your question is so spot on that that's, in one sense, where we need to begin, because we've been formed, uh, consciously or unconsciously, within some kind of understanding of the Spirit. Rito, I'm going to bring you in here. Rito and I, are we allowed to say, Rito, that uh, confess that we come from an Anglican background or Episcopalian background? So how does our or your understanding of the Holy Spirit come into play? That um, the description of the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures is kind of an apt one, I think, from my kind of kind of growing up um, within that kind of Reformed Anglican kind of background, and and I think I think people have been working and struggling, kind of how does how does the Spirit kind of fit in, and how do they how do we reassess? without going too far. And I think often, though, it's been a position of pointing the finger at other people and seeing the excesses of the other and not wanting to be self-reflective kind of in that. I don't know if that's been your experience as well, Brent. Yes, I think Father, Son, and Holy Bible, Professor Smith's phrase sums it up well. Um, mm. I'm going to bring you back in, uh, Professor Smith. Are we so obsessed in some of our churches today with the work of the Spirit that we forget about Jesus? Well, I think, um, I think that's what I mean by a pneumo-centered or spirit-centered piety or spirituality. So um, I, I want to approach the question positively. When someone says to me, um, I would like to know the full experience of the grace of the Holy Spirit in my life. What can I say to that? That's a legitimate longing and aspiration. But I think what people uh, often fail to see is that in actual fact, our experience of the, of the Spirit is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. So if the Holy Spirit grants us grace, dwells within us, or to use the language of the Gospel of Luke, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul uses that language, be filled with the Holy Spirit. But to what end? To what end are we filled with the Spirit? So that when at the, book of, the book of Galatians ends this way, walk in the Spirit, bear the fruit of the Spirit, and so on. Or Ephesians ends with pray in the Spirit at all times and on all occasions. What I think is abundantly clear in Paul and Luke and John, the Gospels, is that this is all a means to an end, that, to use the classic ancient phrase, that I would know, love, and serve Jesus. That is, it is all to that end. So that, what I argue in this new publication, is that Pentecost is in service of the ascension that the Pentecost is to this end, that the glory of the ascended Lord would be known and revealed. So we see this in the experience of, of Stephen, for example, just before he is martyred. He sees Christ in real time sitting on the throne of the universe, but the text makes it very clear. He sees Christ in real time in the throne of the universe, the ascended Lord in all of his majesty and power. How? Through the grace of the Holy Spirit. 
It's the Holy Spirit who opened up his eyes. So when we lose that sense, and then what we end up wanting is some kind of experience of power or manifest presence or some kind of emotional heightened experience as though that's an end in itself. So we actually treat not just the spirit as an end, but a certain kind of emotional high or whatever, whatever emotional hype. Oh, that's a strong word. I might want to delete that one. But you get my point. Uh, and, and, and we're looking for this high, this kind of Disneyland high, as though that's a happy state. Uh, whereas the, the reason the Holy Spirit is given to us is that we would know the transforming grace of God that would lead us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is always the end, that you might grow up into him who is the head. Paul could not make that more abundantly clear. Or in the Gospel of John, the wonderful text of John 15, 4, abide in me and as I abide in you. How are you going to do this? How do you think you are going to live in real-time fellowship with the risen Christ? What a bizarre thought, except for this. A gift has been given to make this possible. The Spirit has been given that you might dwell with Christ. But it's always sustaining that clarity about means and end. How then, I wonder, do we cultivate an understanding of the Spirit that is Trinitarian? Well, um, not all of your hearers may, uh, may warm to what I'm about to say, but I'm of that cadre of people influenced by Thomas Oden and others who are increasingly convinced that the church in a post-Christian secular age needs to draw greater wisdom on the early church. So that when you think of the Rowan Williams, I'm trying to warm, I'm trying to say nice warm things about Anglicans right now. But when you think about Ro Rowan Williams or Sarah Coakley, two of the premier theologians of our generation, uh, part of their genius is that they draw on the wisdom of the ancient church. And I, I want to say for me, I can't start to talk about the Holy Spirit without reaffirming the ancient creeds and what the church fathers were trying to accomplish in the glory of, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the great three in one, and that our faith needs to be anchored there. And frankly, going back to your earlier question, I probably, this is another way to respond. I think within my own tradition, it's our lack of clarity and understanding and living in the dynamic, beautiful, spectacular wonder of the Trinity that leads us vulnerable to uh, whatever, uh, either a neglect of the Spirit or a consumed fascination that, that, that draws us away from the Father and the Son. You write a, a quite a bit about Ambrose of Milan in your book, which fascinates me. How, how does Ambrose speak of the Holy Spirit? Well, uh, I could have chosen Gregory of Nyssa as well. For me, those are the two, uh, at least in my opinion, two of the more accessible of the church fathers. Uh, sometimes it's, it's weighty reading. And, and even in this publication, when I choose Ambrose, at one point I say, now, if you're wondering why Ambrose goes on and on and on, and actually what I did there in two pages was summarize about 60 pages, and, and still you're going to feel, even in my two-page summary, that he goes on and on and on, it's because he's aware of how easily this can go wrong. Uh, and he takes on the genius of, of Ambrose and of Gregory of Nyssa is that they take on two heresies at the same time. The one heresy is the Arian heresy that really neglected the presence of the Spirit as any kind of a divine personal presence. And then on the other side, you had the Sibelians and the modalists for whom this was the highest possible expression. And I say all that and say, does it sound at all familiar? That is, you've got the one on the one side for whom the Spirit is a non-presence, and you've got the, those on the other side for whom this is the ultimate 
God, you might say, and both of them have it right. And part of what uh, the genius of Ambrose is you don't correct the one with the other. You don't, so to speak, this is hard language, but you don't correct one heresy with another heresy. You backtrack and say, what does it mean to call Father, uh, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And I, I think their genius is this articulation of the power and the beauty of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit who are equally involved in creation and in redemption. And that to know the one is to know the other two. And that to live in fellowship with the one is to live with the other two. They are distinct but inseparable. And it's led me to the conviction. In fact, Ambrose speaks, actually it's Augustine who speaks to this deeply influenced by Ambrose. And there's no doubt, I'm, you know, I'm from the Western church. I'm a big fan of Augustine. Where did he come from? When you look at what the impact of Ambrose of Milan on Augustine, you realize that Augustine was formed within a liturgy, a worship, a congregational life that was deeply and powerfully Trinitarian. And I would say, um, even here on our campus at Ambrose University from chapel this morning, if you had visited chapel today, you would not know that we are Trinitarian. Uh, it, you know, the songs we sing, uh, contemporary choruses, uh, it, it, it's just, it's basically just me and Jesus. Jesus likes me a lot, and I like Jesus a lot, and uh, we get along great. And there's just this, the failure to, uh, to anchor us within a Trinitarian faith that I think makes us vulnerable to well, any number of things. Yes, I was going to ask you, in what senses are parts of our modern church uh, Sabellian? We better tell, we better explain to folk what the Sabellian heresy was. It was this sort of step by step view of the Trinity that you started right. with the Father yeah. and went up and to I, Jesus and the Holy Spirit is the supreme one. That's right. And I, I will hear this Can often. Crudely. Yeah, that's, that's crudely, but you know, it's not too far off. People will say, I hear people say to someone, you know, it's wonderful that you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. It's wonderful that you're now a follower of Jesus, but don't you know there's more? You haven't yet received the victory or the higher life or the victorious Christian life or whatever language gets used around that. Well, you can move on to a higher experience than the one you had in Christ. And how do you persuade people? You cannot graduate beyond Jesus. That in actual fact, that's a, and they don't, you don't want to call them heretics, but you want to say, no, in actual fact, the church has always recognized that you don't graduate beyond Jesus, but the ancient uh, heresy is called modalism or the Sabellianism is a form of, Sabellianism is the form of modalism that Ambrose tackled, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's not an uncommon heresy or a misguided understanding of the character of God, that the, the Holy Spirit was active at creation. He didn't just show up on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit was active in the incarnation of Jesus the incarnate one, he didn't just show up on Pentecost. That is, it is not merely the culmination. All three were active at creation and in redemption, different roles. But, uh, but ultimately, I, I want to say, um, as one who's written on the Holy Spirit, nothing, 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 my friend, can satisfy the deep yearning and desire of your heart as much as Jesus that your deep yearning, your deep aspiration, everything you long for in life is found in Jesus. That is not an overstatement. And to that end, the Father through the Son has granted you this spectacular gift of the Spirit who will now draw you into fellowship with Christ. And so when we pray, welcome Holy Spirit, it is to this end that we would know Christ more intimately, more deeply, and serve him more generously. But uh, that, so that we... we 
we, we need to, I think because the Sabellian error or heresy is out there, we almost need to go back again and again to say, no, it's ultimately all about Jesus. Uh, and that that's not, that's simple, but it's not fundamentally flawed. And even, even Paul says in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Even the Father's cool with that. That is, the Father takes delight that you've chosen to find your life in Jesus. This is not, the Father doesn't say, hello, I'm here. Did you forget about me? No, this brings glory to the Father when you bow before the Lordship of Christ. But you bow before the Lordship of Christ through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that draws you into an awareness of it. And I just want to bring you, you I want to make you aware of that, that you're doing this in the Spirit, bringing, uh, 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 entering into fellowship with Jesus, and that this brings delight to the one who's the source of all things, that is the Father. A listener has asked me to ask you, how do we know whether we have the Holy Spirit? I, uh, I understand those who want definitive, concrete evidence that uh, they've had some kind of uh, experience, some kind of tangible evidence, some kind of benchmark that they can take out their, their pad and check it off, and they will know the date in which uh, this definitive experience happened. And whether it's our Pentecostal charismatic friends who will talk about initial evidence, that phrase is used, but this desire, this assurance that we have had this is, I can understand the desire for it. However, I uh, one of the areas in which I have done research and writing and teaching extensively globally is on the experience of coming to faith in Christ. So I'm a student of conversion narratives. I have read hundreds, if not, not thousands, but definitely hundreds of conversion narratives from Pakistan to Turkey, to Japan, to Vietnam, to uh, different parts of North America, uh, to different parts of Europe and so on. And what routinely happens is that you start to realize when somebody tells their story of coming to faith, that there are little indicators, there's little footprints, there's the unavoidableness that the spirit was present to this person, but often in understated ways. So I like to appeal back, for example, to the experience of Elijah, who is there in, under the Mount, at Mount Horeb, under the gorse bush, and the spirit, and, and, and God was not present in the earthquake of the wind and the fire, but the sound of still silence, such that I think sometimes what we need, we, we're, looking for the, all the, we're looking for the wrong thing in the wrong places, not realizing that the spirit is often quiet, subtle, and present. But it's a learn, it then becomes a learned art to recognize where is the spirit present in subtle ways, but no less powerful ways in our lives. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say you can, you can sense this almost daily, that in, in a moment you were given the words to say, and you knew that was not my cleverness, or you felt patience where your, no, your own natural nature would have, been, would have been impatient with the person that cut you off in traffic, or uh, something that happens in the course of your day, uh, a lack of anxiety when everybody around you, and you realize it's not because I'm so clever or smart, but through the grace of the Holy Spirit, this has happened. Having said that, I do believe, uh, and I argue this in Welcome Holy Spirit, that every new Christian, we should lay hands on them and pray like Paul was prayed for by Ananias. We lay hands on every person who comes to faith. We lay hands on them and we pray. You want to call it a confirmation, whatever it is within your tradition, 
lay hands and say, pray on them, come Holy Spirit, come, without expecting that something dramatic is going to happen, but now living confidently that now we have asked for the Holy Spirit and the wonderful words of Jesus, why would the Father not give to his children? So now live in the confidence that you have received this gift and now begin to walk in and bear the fruit of, because ultimately the evidence is not some dramatic experience. The evidence is that you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit in the course of your daily life. And uh, let me just keep saying that don't get overly impressed with yourself when you think, wow, I'm really, I'm really doing well here. No, no, you know, you're a fallen, pathetic creature. The fact that you're doing so well and what you say and what you do is gift and nothing but gift from the, through the transforming grace of the Spirit. Uh, to, to regularly acknowledge that we live dependent lives, dependent on the grace of the Spirit. What are the because people are going to ask me to uh, whether I'm why I haven't asked you this question, so I will ask you the question. What are the two basic positions on the charismatic gifts in the church today? And is there a third way? On this score, I'm uh, I'm indebted. Um, I'm indebted in this whole in this whole project. I'm indebted to a number of writers, scholars, teachers, conversation partners, uh, pastors along the way. But on this particular question, I'm particularly indebted to Gordon Fee. Um, and I think it's noteworthy for me that, that Fee was um, affiliated with the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, very much viewed that as his theological and spiritual tradition. Uh, and we were colleagues together, he towards the end of his career, me towards the beginning at Regent College in Vancouver. And I follow Fee on this, not just from his publications on First Corinthians and other publications, but in conversations with him. He and I used to have breakfast once a week. So when I talk about the third way, I want to just acknowledge that my, my mentor, my teacher on this score. First, there are those for whom the spectacular gifts or even thinking in terms of gifts is fitting for the young pioneer church when it's first getting started. But as the church matures, it kind of leaves behind and put all of this in, in quotation marks, childish things. And we no longer, in a sense, need to depend on or expect these kinds of manifestations of these gifts because we live by the exposition of the scripture and by the conscious appropriation of the word and intentional response to the word. And an example of that would be Bruce Walkie, also a colleague at Gordon Feed, but we are very much a word center. We're growing in wisdom as we engage the text and the text forms and informs and transforms our lives. On the other end of the spectrum, is that the church lives almost uh, with an immediacy of these gifts with a particular appreciation for uh, the manifestation of, I'm using that word intentionally, what some people speak of as the, the greater manifestations or the more spectacular manifestations, whatever that might be of these gifts, such as tongue speaking, prophecy, discernment, and the so on, that these are a greater evidence that there's been an inbreaking into our natural order. Now, going back to my earlier comment about the relationship between the spirit and creation, it also leads to a greater appreciation for the ordinary, for the stuff, not just the spectacular that kind of bypasses creation that seems more miraculous. We are, I still believe in miracles, but I actually think that I'm no less taken by the way the spirit works with the ordinary. So that's an important backstop to what I'm going to say next, that on both scores, I want to gently push back and say, that the Spirit's deep fundamental work is through the normal routine rhythms of congregational life and witness. So, for example, the early church we read, Acts 2.42, devoted themselves, after the day of Pentecost, 
devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. Just like that's it. They just devoted themselves to this ordinary routine life, word and sacrament. You're just going to do this again and again and again? Yeah. Because the deep work of the Spirit happens slowly, gradually, and incrementally. That does not mean, though, contrary to the cessationists, as they're called, that the Spirit can't, uh, as the Spirit seeks to choreograph. So let me put stress, it's not choreographable, but the Spirit chooses to act in ways in which we know something unique and out of the ordinary happened, but we're not craving it or trying to choreograph it. We're letting the Spirit do the Spirit's work in the Spirit's time. And again, Gordon Fee, uh, I think Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians that these gifts maybe have their place, but they're not the primary expression of the Spirit. The fundamental expression of the Spirit is the standard, routine, boring gifts of prophetic witness, the prophet, the apostles, the teachers, and the routine life of the church that we need to say every time the word is opened and proclaimed faithfully, the Spirit of God is doing what only the Spirit of God can do to take this ancient text and use it to transform us into the image of Christ. And it happens in the ordinary, in the routine. And I think both ends of these, one doesn't appreciate that it's the spirit that is doing this. And the other is looking for manifestations, for lack of a better word, that actually tend to bypass the ordinary. We've only got a few minutes left. So it's a question of which question do I ask to finish, really. But um, I'd love to know how, how the Holy Spirit inspires artists and musicians and indeed scientists. Well, it goes back to um, essentially when we recover an appreciation between the Holy Spirit and creation, it doesn't take long before we realize, wow, this stuff of this earth that we live on matters. And who are those that can help us understand the stuff of life? They can be charismatic agents, agents of the Spirit, to give us insight into the environment, the ecology, our own embodiment. And then I'll spend more time on the second because I'm married to an artist, but then also to realize, and here I'm dependent on Hans Urs von Balthasar, especially all of us who say what I'm about to say, recognize that he was the giant on this score, that in actual fact, the presence of the spirit in the world and in the church is mediated to us through beauty. As soon as we say that, if he's right, which I think he is, but as soon as we say that, we realize, oh, it's the artists in our midst then who design our spaces. It's the artists in our midst who draw us into the wonder and glory and beauty of the created order, who, who reveals the glory of, the, of God to us by the Holy Spirit. Suddenly, artists are not you know, marginal to our lives. We lean into them in, the, in, in worship on Sunday morning, in our common life, whether it's our art galleries, our musicians, our dancers, or our actors. They become instruments of the grace of God, more specifically, the Spirit of God in our midst. Mm. Rido, final comments from you as we wrap up. Anything you need to or want to add before we close? It's so helpful. Um, and, yeah, there's, there's, in terms of the how does the church be Trinitarian, I think one of the big issues that I'm kind of wrestling with is, is how do we then um, incorporate both in our liturgy you know, of, uh, and taking on some of those ancient practices, how do we incorporate that kind of Trinitarian view in our worship services? This is this really is the right place to end because that's where we need to we begin and end there. But we've got to find some variation on praise to the Father, praise to the Son, praise to the Spirit, the great three in one. And if you want to do it in contemporary songs and routines and rhythms, fine. Find some way to do that. Find contemporary song writers, hymn writers, 
who know how to draw us into the wonder of the Trinity. My opinion is that the church right now where I am, we need to always open that way. And our benediction at the end needs to be the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to be, be and abide with each one of you. That we almost need to begin and then frame our worship that way so that when within our worship then, uh, we are conscious of all three members of the Trinity. And so, so, for example, when the word is preached, we open with the prayer, come Holy Spirit, come and guide us in this reading and in this proclamation. When we come to the Lord's table, come Holy Spirit, come and make these simple things, the body and blood of Christ to us. Come Holy Spirit, come before we even gather for worship, that you would we would maintain this the, the bond of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're always conscious that the Holy Spirit is the one who is the, not, not the enabler, I know that's not the right word you're supposed to use, but you get my drift, the one who's catalytic and drawing us. We don't do this in our own capacity or strength. We come into the presence of Jesus, deeply dependent on the Spirit, who then in turn draws us into the wonder of the, of the Father, who is the source of all things. Mm. Just to make this explicit, I think, is needed in our, in our liturgies and worship. Gordon T. Smith, President and Professor of Systematic and Spiritual Theology at Ambrose University and Seminary in Vancouver, Canada, and his new book from InterVarsity Press, IVP America, is Welcome Holy Spirit, a Theological and Experiential Introduction, and my thanks also to Rido, Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Gentlemen, thank you both so much. My pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. Godstory